We've actually come to the final line of the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to continue on all the way through verse 18. So even though today is the conclusion of the actual prayer that you all grew up knowing and learning, we are going to continue on all the way through the rest of that section. So we spent the first few weeks focusing on God Himself, His holiness, His will, His kingdom. We've spent the last few weeks looking at ourselves, praying to God for daily bread. Last week we talked about forgiveness. We learned that we are both a forgiven people in Christ, but also a forgiving people in Christ. And today we close up in verse 13, which reads, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You don't have to raise your hand this morning, but if you've ever heard the expression, the devil made me do it, perhaps this is what you think of. You think of this prayer. Well, there's a lot of theological complications with that phrase, first and foremost, and we'll unpack some of that this morning. Now, last week we determined that even though Jesus is praying for forgiveness... Jesus didn't need forgiveness. He's perfect in every way. Fully God, fully man, never sinned. And we concluded that the reason he discussed and brought up forgiveness was to model to his disciples that they needed to be people who were confessing their sin. Well, it's the same way this morning in discussing temptation and testing But there's one distinct difference. We know, according to Scripture, that Jesus was, in fact, tempted. Luke chapter 4 gives us a very detailed description of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So he was tempted as we are tempted. And yet, the major difference is, Jesus passed the test 100%. Whereas, when we are tempted, many times we fall short. If you read through the entirety of the scriptures, you see that God regularly brings tests into people's lives. We have the test of Abraham that we read about in Genesis 22. We have David. We have Judas. Some of them pass their tests. Some of them fail their tests. But why did Jesus think it was necessary to model for his followers this prayer regarding temptation. Because after all, Jesus was perfect in his temptation. However, because we're not perfect, we should be praying regularly against temptation in our time with the Lord. And we should never assume that because in one moment of our life, by the grace of God, we were able to overcome temptation, does not mean that we will automatically overcome it for the rest of our existence. So as we dive into the text this morning, two primary observations. Number one, the relationship between temptation and sin. And number two, Satan's role in temptation and sin. So the relationship, number one, between Satan and sin, and then Satan's role in temptation and sin. Last week, when we talked about forgiveness, we went in-depth into a theology of sin. We needed to know what sin is and why it matters in order to accurately understand why we need forgiveness. 
In the same way, when we talk about temptation, sin is another very important concept to understand. And I think James, in his epistle, chapter 1, gives us a great flowchart, for lack of a better term, of how sin often works out in our lives. So I'm going to read that this morning. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Very theologically rich. This is what James tells us. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What do we learn from this passage? Number one, we know from this passage, God does not tempt people. Now that begs the question, then why does Jesus pray about temptation? And we're going to get into that in a moment, so stay with me. But verse 13 in James 1 could not be any clearer. God does not tempt people. He is not in the business of causing you to sin. The Greek word really should be translated more like test or trial. And we do know from Scripture that God regularly tests His children. That's found throughout the pages of Scripture. But look at verse 14. James says we are tempted by our own desires. The key phrase is our own desires. God is not the originator of sin. And a host of scriptures verify that claim. Job 34.10, Isaiah 6.3, Deuteronomy 32.4, Psalm 92.16, just to name a few. But since the fall of Adam and Eve, all humanity has an inherited sin nature. Some call it original sin, original pollution, inherited corruption. The idea is that you and me are sinful by nature. You don't develop a sin nature as you are born. You are born with that sin nature. We need to be very clear on this. The State of Theology Report, which I mentioned a few weeks ago to you guys, came out around six weeks ago. It's a partnership between Lifeway Research and Ligonier, and it polls Americans on a number of theological questions. And one of the questions that they asked in this survey was the question, are people born innocent? And 74% of Americans responded in the affirmative, that we are born innocent. The scriptures teach the opposite. Psalm 51.5, David says in his great prayer, when he's confessing his sin before God, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now what the doctrine of original sin does not teach is that no good ever happens in the world through sinners. We know that's not true. By God's common grace, He has set up governments and societies and families to uphold good and moral values. 
So we are not saying original sin is not teaching that because we have sin, we're just destined to be the scum of the earth forever and can never accomplish any good in the world. But none of those things change the fact theologically that we are not born innocent. Paul argues this in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So think of it like this. You sin because you're a sinner. Not you're a sinner because you sin. Think that through. It makes sense, I promise. The temptations that we give into, James 1 is telling us, come from our own desires. Now, at the point of desire, sin still necessarily hasn't happened. Because we can have good desires. I have a desire to work hard, as hard as I possibly can. But when that desire to work consumes me, it becomes idolatry. And instead of finding my worth and fulfillment in who Christ says that I am, I now find my worth and fulfillment in my ability to work hard, thus making my God working hard rather than himself. I want to be a good steward of my body, so I want to exercise. I want to exhaust my energy for all of God's glory, and I want to do that to the best of my ability, as long as He gives me the ability to do so. But at some point, in my desire to be the best, that can easily cross over into pride, where you begin comparing yourself to other brothers and sisters. So desires in and of themselves are neutral. But at some point, James tells us, our desires get lured and enticed for evil purposes. And when that desire is conceived, James says, it gives birth to sin. And sin, he says, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. At some point, our sin nature attacks that sometimes good desire, and we sin. And we know that sin leads to death. The picture of that is in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are cast out from the Garden of Eden. No, they don't immediately die, but when you read a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 5, Moses is giving us the genealogy all the way from Adam to Noah. And there's a key phrase. If you go to Genesis 5, you can circle it over and over and over again. You know what that key phrase is? And he died. And he died. And he died over and over again. Moses is communicating to us in that passage, sin brings death. So let's review what James is saying here. Number one, God does not cause us to sin or tempt us with sin. Number two, we are tempted by our own desires. Number three, those desires, when they are lured and enticed, give birth to sin. And number four, sin brings death. Now remember I said in the context of this prayer, more than likely temptation is talking about a test or a trial or an affliction that God brings 
But tests, oftentimes throughout Scripture, are used by God to strengthen His children. J.I. Packer says, God does and must test us regularly to prove what is in us and to show how far we have come. So if testing is a way that God measures our growth, why would Jesus pray that we would not be led into these types of tests? It seems like, based on the text, even though God uses tests and trials and afflictions in our lives, due to our propensity to sin and to fail those tests, Jesus thought it best to model for his disciples to pray against that happening. Thomas Watson. I know I mention him all the time. We talked a few weeks ago about his little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. He's written another book called All Things for Good. And in that book, he constructs an argument showing how afflictions can be used for good in the life of a Christian. How many of you have ever questioned whether or not the trials and the tests that you are going for going through, are actually for your good. If we believe Romans 8, 28, then we know that that's true. So he spends a section in that book unpacking how God uses afflictions for our good. And I want to share just a few of those with you this morning as a word of encouragement to you. He says, number one, afflictions are the means of our loosening our hearts from the things of this world. We are so prone to worry and stress over the things of this life. But when going through a trial or an affliction or a test, it loosens our hearts away from the things of the world and back to our primary focus, God Himself. Number two, he also says afflictions conform us to Christ. How do they do that? Who has suffered more than Christ himself? So in the middle of our trials and tests, we are conformed more to Christ. Number three, he says, afflictions put the the wicked to silence. He argues that when someone is not in Christ and they see a believer remaining faithful to God through trials, it shuts the mouth of the wicked, he says. And number four, Afflictions work for good as they make way for glory. He sums up that section by saying, Thus we see afflictions are not prejudicial, but beneficial to the saints. We should not so much look at the evil of affliction as the good, not so much at the dark side of the cloud as the light. The worst that God does to his children is to whip them into heaven, he says. We can pray just like Jesus asks us to pray here. Because we know that God does not lead us into temptation, but He does often lead us into tests and trials. But just know that if you are going through that test, if you are going through that trial, our afflictions are for His glory and for our good. Number two, we also see Satan's role in temptation and sin. Yes, Satan does play a role here. Let's look at two examples from the Scriptures 
Genesis chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. In Genesis 3, the serpent gets Eve to doubt that God knew what was best for her. Verse 1 of chapter 3, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Think about this for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, there were a variety, most likely, of food choices. We're talking one tree that God asked them not to partake of. They had perfect fellowship with God. They had perfect fellowship with each other at this point. And they still gave in to the temptation brought about by the serpent. But Jesus' temptation, while similar in some ways, was much more difficult and in many ways different. He had no other human fellowship and no food to eat for 40 days. In addition, Adam and Eve were fully human. Whereas we know Jesus is fully human and fully God. Satan tried to tempt Adam and Eve by getting them to doubt that God knew what was best. Whereas Satan tried to get Jesus to use his authority as God in a way that would be disobedient to his father. Satan's tactic was to try to force Jesus, unsuccessfully of course, to use his divine nature in a way that would distort his temptation as fully man. Had Jesus simply used his divine nature to turn the stones into bread, or if he threw himself down off the temple so that God could save him by some miraculous miracle, it would weaken the full force of his temptation as man. And the New Testament is clear that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in God's providence, Satan was used to demonstrate the full and perfect humanity of Jesus. He was a tool that God used to prove that Jesus' humanity was not like ours because we would have given in to temptation. His humanity was perfect making his sacrifice for sins on the cross valid and sufficient. In Jesus' temptation, Satan was ultimately a pawn of God to accomplish his purposes in the world. So we can confidently approach Jesus in the midst of our temptation, knowing that he has experienced fully everything that we experience in our temptations and was still without sin. What an encouragement, brothers and sisters, that what you endure and experience through temptations, Christ has experienced and yet remained faithful. So how does Satan work in the life of a believer? How does he tempt us? He tempts us both individually 
And he tempts us corporately. He wants churches, hear me this morning, to get distracted over secondary and tertiary matters because that is a detraction from gospel work. He wants you to get caught up in the weeds of secondary and tertiary doctrines even. Even though they're important, they should never detract from gospel work. He wants churches to ask questions like this. Let's just do whatever we have to do to get people in the building. Instead of asking, what does God's word teach about how we should structure our church and how we should structure our worship service. Satan wants us to think that evangelism means getting as many people as possible to fill out a card or to say some prayer so that we can then report high numbers when in fact the Bible tells us to slow down, faithfully proclaim the gospel, yes, but make sure people understand what conversion is what repentance means, what faith in Christ actually means. And we should urge people, in addition, to count the cost of following Jesus. Satan wants churches to focus all of their financial resources on themselves instead of focusing on the 3.2 billion people in the world who are unreached and will die never knowing that they can be saved from their sin and reconciled to a holy God. Satan wants churches pulling members from other churches instead of actually going out to proclaim the gospel to lost people that live in their communities. He wants us to feel good when we grow numerically, but we never grow in actual conversion to faith in Christ. Satan wants churches to have low expectations of its leaders and its members so that the church will simply continue to coast rather than go out and proclaim the gospel to a lost world that needs it. This is how Satan tempts the church. How does he tempt us individually? He tempts us into thinking that we actually know what's best for our lives rather than God, which is exactly how he tempted Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. They thought they knew better than God. He tempts us to believe that studying God's word is really only something the professional should do. Not the everyday Christian. I don't have time to do that. That's what he wants you to believe. He wants you to completely give up your own individual pursuit of Christ and just leave it to the professionals. He tempts us to believe that prayer is only necessary when things go really bad in my life, instead of understanding that prayer is the lifeline to intimacy with God. He wants you to think that faithfulness to your church is optional and only necessary if you have absolutely nothing else going on in your life at that moment on that day. This is how he tempts believers. He is more than happy for you to justify not coming by saying, I think I'm just going to sit in bed today and watch it on the internet. And by the way, preachers don't like to hear that. <laughs> so if you watch the service online, just don't tell us. We'd rather not know. It's not an encouragement to us. He wants you to say, he wants you to say this, brothers and sisters. He wants you to say, I've done my time of service in the church. I retire. It's time for the next generation to take the lead. As if we ever see that in the pages of Scripture. 
Every breath that God gives you should be used for His glory in His church and amongst the nations of the world. There is no retirement plan here at First Baptist Dothan. It doesn't exist. Don't tell me you want to retire for ministry. But Satan tempts us to think that. He tempts us to think that I've done my time. It's time for more people to step up. He wants you to believe that when people die, as long as they're a good person, they'll be in heaven. That's called universalism. And it's not what the Bible teaches. John tells us in chapter 14, verse 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. This is how He tempts believers. It's not always that He's dangling in front of you these evil, wicked sins. Sometimes He's just trying to get you to get distracted about the things that ultimately don't matter. Sometimes He wants you to just coast through life. Have just a happy, middle-class existence, a nuclear family, and you think this must mean that I'm in the center of God's will. But sometimes you might not be. So we approach temptations seriously, both at a corporate level and at an individual level, knowing that Satan wants nothing more than for us to simply be content where we're at. Even though we are tempted, did you know that God still uses our temptations for good? That might be hard to believe, considering I just ranted about temptations. But God can actually use the temptations that we endure for our good. Watson has a whole other section. After he talks about afflictions and tests and trials, he has a whole section about how temptations can be used for the believer's good. He says that they are good because temptation sends us to prayer. When you're in that moment of temptation, do you not go to the Lord desperate for Him to help you overcome that temptation? Number two, he says, they keep us from perpetuating sin. Number three, it decreases pride in us, he says. Just when you think your sanctification is complete, God brings another test, another trial, or Satan brings another temptation into your life. And in that moment, it decreases pride. He also says temptations help us so that we know how to comfort others in their temptations. What you have endured, what you have gone through, can be used for the good of another believer or sister in Christ. He says they stir up paternal compassion in God to those who are tempted. He says they make us long for heaven. They help us engage the strength of Christ in us. So Satan will use temptations, he will use evil in the world to try and get people to think that God is actually not all-powerful, but through the death of Jesus. Satan, brothers and sisters, has already been defeated. And his power, though not fully eradicated, is on life support this morning. And if you are in Christ today, leave encouraged. God 
often uses testing and trials. And when Satan tempts you, we know the words of Romans 8.28 to be true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And if you're not in Christ today, please understand that you are in bondage to sin. You have not been saved from the punishment or power of sin in your life. You are a servant of self only. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. And only Jesus Christ can bring you from death to life. No matter what you might experience in this life, God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Remember that truth today, Christian. Cling to it in times of testing and trial. Non-Christian, repent of your sin and believe in Christ today for eternal life and reconciliation to a holy God. Let's pray. God, as we think back through our own lives, countless times that we have been tested and tried and those have been used for our good, whether we realize it or not, they have been used for our good. And Father, when Satan tempts us, when he tries to give us to give in to sin and evil, we know that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who was tempted in every way that we were, yet was without sin. So we are thankful for him this morning. Father, if there is anyone here who has never turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, draw them to yourself. May they come to know you today. May they take that bold step of approaching me or someone around them so they can learn more about the gospel and what it means to follow after Jesus. And for those of us in Christ today, as we continue in worship, may we celebrate and ponder what it means to experience testing and trial for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.